Hello and welcome to What Goes Around and this week I am recording my piece inside a nondescript hotel room as I look for a new place to live. My name is Eamon Murtar and I'm Anne Frankenstein and this week we are talking about moving. No, not Anne again, this time it's my turn. Stay tuned for exciting tips on how to make sure you buy a house where you can make noise and get away with it. And we are delighted to welcome David Christian Bauer of Comet Gain, indie pop legends, to make us believe in indie pop, and he is going to make you believe. And our guest this week is one of the nicest men I think I've ever met. It's Mr. Pat Nevin. Pat, best known for playing football for Scotland and Chelsea, is also a very, very keen music fan with deep links into the indie scene going way back right back to the time when he was John Peel's secret footballer, often sitting in on recordings while the great man himself pulled out some 12-inch by Pat is exactly the sort of person we always wanted on Phonographic Memories, someone who you might not expect to be deeply into his music, but who really is and has the stories to match his enthusiasm. Okay, let's do it. Let's part. It's potting time. It's potting time. It's potting time. Eamon Murder, I'd quite like to know what goes around. Well, Anne Frankenstein, friend of mine, I am having a very interesting, nerve-wracking, slightly pressureful, but very exciting time at the moment because I, 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 I'm sure the listeners will be very glad to find out that whilst the first series was almost entirely dedicated to the saga of you moving house, series two is almost entirely going to be dedicated to the saga of me moving house. Oh, how fascinating. I cannot wait to hear all about this it's across several episodes. I yeah. welcome yeah. I welcome any discussion that you want to have <laughs> on this subject, which is uh, very close to my heart. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been it's been a journey already and we've not really moved anything uh, because you just oh, it's such a first of all, you have to get your brain in gear. So I'm going to I'm going to fly the coop. We're going to change things that aren't going to be the same. And then you've got to think, where am I going to go to? And then you, all the practicalities. And uh, we tidied up to take pictures. And I've never I've never worked harder in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and they were good pictures in the end. Did Your the job, house is so. tidy. What, what's, what needs uh, do you know, tidy? there's always this tidy and then there's like someone's going to take a picture of your house tidy. Yeah. You just have to you have to work harder. You have to do more. It was decluttering to be done. You know, it wasn't yeah. just give it a quick dust and it's all done. But the interesting thing here is that because of the whole moving situation, I have, of course, been looking for somewhere to move. And uh, how does this relate to our charming music-based podcast? Well, I have a problem with wherever I move, which is that I am a DJ and therefore inclined to play music, often fairly loud. Now, I'm not a terrible person. I don't bang it out till four in the morning every night. I'm not that guy. But, you know, I do play music in the house fairly loud when I'm getting a set together and um, when I do me little stream of dreams on a Saturday. So I've been very nervous about where I'm going to go because in London you can just be loud because everyone's allowed to be a belligerent tosser in London. No, Eamon. <laughs> this is why people like us have to move out of London because of attitudes like that. Well, you know what I'm saying then. Do you know, We're the last two good people left here. Except you play your music loud. 
Yeah, but I do. I don't it, know if you can put yourself in that category. I do it in collusion and coordination with the neighbours. Okay, so, uh, okay, okay. I was going to say, how did the neighbours feel? Because you lived there for quite a long time. Have you ever yeah. had any problems with the neighbours? Well, it's, it's generally been okay because when I actually play music loud, it isn't nighttime. So I don't keep people awake because at nighttime I'm out playing music in proper places. Some where, people like, like clubs to nap during the day. Well, this is the thing, uh, and I'll get on to that. <laughs> I mean, I'm a DJ, so I like to nap during the day. Yeah. But I generally get my sets together during the day. And generally, it's been fine because everyone was out to work. Now, of course, lockdown has meant that they're not out to work. And, you know, uh, it, uh, oh, thankfully, I've had hardly any work to prepare for. <laughs> so it's not been too big a problem. But I have to, there's chance, because when, you, when you're a DJ and you're getting things together, you don't play music. Like it's not it's not there to be listened to. So it's not like if I went to the park and I had my little, or I was on the back of the bus and I'd be a little ghetto blaster, whatever I'd play to you there, I'd want you to listen to that. Do you know what I mean? This is my brilliant mix. Have a listen to this. But what they're hearing when I'm getting stuff together for the, for the set on the weekend is me trying things out, playing 30 seconds of this one, taking it off, scratch, making a terrible mix, doing something else, going back, playing the same bit over and over again. You're I making me it. want to call the police, even just hearing I know, you say that. I know, but what I, honestly, I'm good. Cause I, so I, I lock all the doors and windows, even on a really hot day, and I sit in a little sweat box and I just... I just try and keep a lid on it. So I'm not a terrible person. I'm not great. I'm not <laughs> terrible. And I'm aware that this is going to be a problem wherever I go. So this is how you look at houses when you are a music person. You must look for any tiny sign in the houses that you are looking at that a music person already lives there. Mm. Yeah. Look for, the, look for the room with all the guitars in. Look, look for the because, you know, if you've got records as well, you're going to stick one record up for people to read. And that's going to be the ones like, yeah, they're going to take a picture of the front room. Della Soul, maybe I'll put David Bowie up. But, you know, it's not going to be some random old thing. They're going to have thought about that for hours. You know, Mm. I mean, I'll put my rare Gil Scott Heron French cover up. That'll that'll sell the house. What if they're moving because their neighbours can't take it anymore? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I just think you've got to then uh, sort of weigh up how how musicked up that room looks. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a permanent music room or is that, have they just flung a Sonos system in there and, <laughs> and someone's got a banjo, you know? Or have they actually, you know, put some heavy carpets on the wall? It, has this person got a big sampler in on his desk? That sort of thing. And if you find these little clues, then you begin to think, ah, well, maybe I'll be all right in that house. You see, I thought when you said the way that you look for a house when you're a music person is that you look for a detached house surrounded by lots of land. Oh, that too. Yeah, that too. <laughs> but, you know, listen, the, the, the bank isn't infinite. You know, we have, a, we have a, a financial imperative. So it's not always possible to buy a remote castle with a moat. Mm. Well, that's what I'm aiming for. But that's as a person who likes silence. Now you've got a canal out the back. <laughs> yeah, but the fucking... Did you not see, like, last weekend... There was a canal boat, this party boat that went down the river very slowly past my house with a horde of about 200 people (laughs) dancing to some terrible Whitney Houston remix, walking along the bank. A few police officers standing there with their arms folded, nothing they could do. It was basically a riot. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, the the music was not good in that video, I have to say. that wasn't As you described it, it was bum. It was bum. That's my new favourite way to describe things. Short and succinct, I like it. (laughs) I have have, um, serious history with canals, you see, Mm. because way back in the day when I was a little raver, um, our posse did throw uh, a a canal rave. It was under a bridge. It was quite far away from any houses or anything. 
Um, but, you know, it was, it, was, it was naughty and we shouldn't have done it. And we're very sorry. But, it, you know, it's, it's happened now. So let's just live on the joyous memory of it. And my favourite memory of the whole thing, because it wasn't that far from my house, I could walk to it. So I had my records in my hand, like proper cardboard box full of records, no bag in those days. And um, and the the police were kind of circling the area because they knew there was a rave going on, but they didn't know exactly where. And they caught sight of me and went round the roundabout. And went, oh! So I had to jump over the hedge and slide my way down to the canal and go along the towpath towards the, the, the rave, which is away in the distance. It's pitch black at night. You know, it's a canal path, so there's no, no street lighting. I, I was literally, uh, I couldn't see where I was going. I had a big box with me. And I was trudging along uh, amongst the reeds and suddenly this flashlight just pinged up in my face and I was like, oh no, it's the Rosses again. And it was this guy with quite a high-pitched voice just going, is that anything to do with you up there? And I was like, what? Oh, the, the, and I sort of looked at my records thought, there's not much point denying it as I've got, <laughs> got a large handful of records here. Uh, so I said, yeah, it's a very, sorry about that. And he was going, no, it's brilliant, mate, it's brilliant. I was like, what? He goes, oh, mate. I'm in the local fishing club. Never caught so much. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, all the bass from up the, about like a half a mile, a mile up, up the canal, was just driving all the fish down there. And he was spooning them out. Like, he just couldn't get out fast enough. And he was, he was hilarious. He was a really funny guy. He was XSAS, had this really high voice. And then uh, in the morning, uh, I just remember a very, very strange scene. Joey Beltram was playing big, booming techno. And people were dancing on top of the, the barge. And people were doing their Sunday cruises, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning, and just seeing all these crazies on the side of the thing going off. And then the man from the from the fishing club popped up. And uh, he had to, he was just brilliant. He he had a little, a little thing, a little piece of paper saying that he'd won the competition. And he was really stoked and uh, sort of giving, shaking my hand and saying, well done and everything. And then he said uh, a quite curious thing, because it was like, this is a long time ago, this is the 90s, and it was like about, I don't know, 8.39 in the morning. And he said, oh, do, do you want a drink? I'll buy you a drink. And I was like, well, you know, it's like 8 o'clock in the morning, where are you going to buy a drink? He goes, oh, fishing club. I was like, what? Turns out there's a fishing club. And the fishing club have a special deal with this one particular pub uh, where the pub opens at six o'clock in the morning <laughs> serving booze. <laughs> now, that is some dangerous information in the hand of ravers. <laughs> <laughs> so we went back to the, the place and, uh, you know, there was all these men in galoshes and a vague smell of maggots in the room. But they were all drinking pints at nine o'clock in the morning. and We were well ready for pints. So we all got stuck into that. And then every couple of weeks, so we'd come back from whatever rave was and we'd stumble out of the car and we'd go, fishing club. And fishing club went from a serene sort of chat about trout to sort of a gabbling herd of gurning ravens at <laughs> nine o'clock in the morning Jesus. getting off their tits. This but, is you what know. you have to find the local fishing club where you move to. This is what you've got to do. Track See, them I'm, down. I'm probably a little bit old for that now. <laughs> old, too old for fishing club? Unlikely. Uh, no, too old for my version of fishing club. I'd probably be all right catching fish and then sitting around and drinking, but I certainly wouldn't be up for the all-night raving and then drinking. Mm. That might well, be beyond me. Just to springboard off your, um, off your tried and tested... Well, is it tried and tested yet? Probably not. I guess we'll <laughs> have no, to it's, see. It's just <laughs> tried. <laughs> yeah. Well, your technique of, uh, of, of trying to figure out what house to move into... Yeah. Um, 
someone, I think it was my sister, discovered this house on Right Move in Newcastle because, as you probably know, I fantasize a lot about moving to Newcastle. Mm. I have this, you know, just. It reminds me of Dublin. It's um, a lovely part of the world. My sister lived there. It's a lovely part of the world. And I do have this idealized vision of, of moving to Newcastle one day. I'm going back there to visit uh, in May. But so occasionally I'm on right move looking at houses in Newcastle. And my sister sent me this house in Gateshead. And I have to know who owns this house. I've literally been like looking at threads on the internet. I even looked at mum's net <laughs> trying to figure it out. There was a thread <laughs> about desperate. it. So basically it's this house. It looks, <laughs> it's in Gateshead yeah. and it looks like a luxury mental asylum. It's all decked out in white in a kind of cheaply done 2001 a space odyssey way but mm. also in a like i went to madeline and picked out every single white piece of homeware like yeah. twigs with fairy lights on but also like padded walls every and, and also like the bedroom is all decked out in white but then it's got this really cheap taddy looking tartan bedspread <laughs> On one of the beds. <laughs> you, you see, once I'd seen the padded walls, I'd have thought, oh, soundproofing could be a goer. But this is exactly this is exactly what I'm saying. So, like, it's all padded and it's all kind of, um, you know, it's been decked out in that way, in that sort of tasteless way that someone, like a music person maybe who came into their mm. riches without develop, having a, you know, honing their sense of taste. Mm. Um, but it's got one room that has a serious rack of guitars in it. I'm talking about, like, 10 different types of guitars and then just, like, a desk and a and a computer like so definitely a music person lives mm. there and that's the speculation that's going around um maybe it's, it's um jimmy nail you know the crocodile shoes <laughs> i feel like jimmy nail has better taste i feel like jimmy nail would have a more rustic <laughs> style house. i feel like jimmy nail has better taste <laughs> so, but that's how bad this house is aiming and also here's a little clue right and i really hope if there's someone listening who lives up there who can give me any kind of information it is on right move um, if you look up houses, you can't miss it. It's like 500 grand, which is, to be honest, like far more than it's worth for all the shit you'd have to fucking rip off the walls <laughs> to make it normal. It's got like porthole doors and stuff. It's so fucking weird. But um, there's a sign on the front, which we figured out from like zooming into one of the stills. Um, and it says El Diablo. So the house is called El Diablo. Ooh, I have to know who lives the there. Devil. <laughs> also, that's what I'm thinking. So it's got to be some kind of rock star. Maybe someone from ACDC or yeah, something. I was going to say, ACDC, yeah, because he's, he's, he's a Jordi, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it guy. definitely looks like the kind, but the, I don't know, like I feel like a genuine rich rock star would have their house mm. decorated to a higher standard. This is like proper McDonald's. You want someone who was in, who is like, uh, you know, in racy or darts or something like yes, that. Yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah, exactly. But then, but then, why the rack of guitars? And there was something. I, oh, no, yeah. Once you, if you play, you keep playing. You don't just. Stop, but it's like lit. It's like the. It's a collection of guitars. It's like ten guitars easily, maybe mm. even more. Just like different types of guitars. Um, and like you say, the place looks like it's the whole place looks like it's soundproofed as well. Maybe that's for some other reason. But um, if you find it on, we can post the link in the show notes. But if you find it on Right Move, there's a video that goes along with the tour of the house where they put Carl Orff's Carmina Burana over it. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> brilliant! It's so brilliant. I would recommend that, anyone looking at it, looking at it to uh, to indulge in the house that, tour video. That is an odd choice for a soundtrack. I, I think say. you should move there. Hang on a second. I was just going to say. I think you've just found my house for me. I got to go. I got to get on Right Move. Please move to El Diablo. <laughs> 
<laughs> That'll be fab. Hey, listen, join us again next time, podcast fans, where we do part two of the Odyssey of uh, Eamon's home removal. <laughs> if anyone can give me any tips for, for Eamon somewhere to live, for me, any tips on who on who's selling the El Diablo house, mm. I have to know. Mm. And for me, anyone who is willing to move 50 record boxes uh, for, for a couple of quid. <laughs> no one loves you that much. It's true, it's true. <laughs> You may have heard the term indie music before, but what exactly does it mean? Surely it's more than just any old band with guitars. Well, there was a time when indie music was a clarion call for creativity, an attempt to wrestle away control for the mendacious hands of the music industry bigwigs. David Christian Bauer was right there at the beginning of indie a pioneer with his band Comic Gain, and he takes us back to the golden age of bowl haircuts, stripy shirts, and incredible musical innovation. So, indie pop, with a big red emphasis on the pop, and an exclamation mark. As for me and others of my generation of indie losers, it's always been about the pop song. Under three minutes, romantic, idealised, verses, choruses, hooks. Perfect, pure, pop, punk. My definition is totally biased, as I was an indie kid when it started. So what you, you young puppies would call indie pop now, to me, it's just aping the tropes, uh, I guess, more of a white, vacuous, affected facsimile. To me, the original was very much an extension of punk and its ethics, a kind of lo-fi, DIY, independent, but more erudite, more romantic, as I guess by, by then punk had become more geezerish and yobby, and indie was a definite move towards a kind of sensitive and feminine side, I guess. But it could be just as loud and energetic as any punkoid. And mix that with a resurgence of interest in 60s pop culture. Seeds and the left bank and the creation and indie kids were definitely kind of enthralled to that kind of 60s thing. More recent heroes at the time, like Jonathan Richmond, Postcard Records, and its aesthetic, Orange Juice, The Jam, Dex's Midnight Runners, Julian Cope, The Fool, all these, all these bands that would kind of like intelligent pop music that were actually in the charts and became kind of heroes. Intense melange of styles coalescing in, into this Frankenstein monster known as the Indie Kid.
if you went to an indie kids flat then you'd find cramps and tamla and northern soul the stooges kinks the who you do beat poet books uh, kitchen sink books french new wave posters it'd probably be a poster of judy christie and terence stamp on the wall realistically the velvets and the birds were the big buddhas um indie kids would wear stripes and leathers bowl cuts the girls would have bobs and like, short skirts um, it was a haven for the shy and weird, really, and the whole, a lot of it was, it was about belonging, finding your tribe, which I guess all youth cultures kind of are about that. Another good aspect to the whole thing was the feminine side, you, you, you know, which I, punk was a very kind of, like I said, yobbish male kind of version of aggressiveness uh where i mean most bands probably had a girl in it or some of the bands had uh all girl bands like the shop assistants oh no that was a guy there And it wasn't something you'd notice because it didn't matter. Uh, the girls were writing fanzines; they were doing, they were just an equal a part of it. Well, that's how it seemed to me, anyway. Um, you'd make friends with the girls, which was for so some of us, some of us shy weirdos, was quite difficult because we shared this this love of this music, and there was no barrier. Um, and then later on, you had labels like Sarah Records, who had a very defined feminine side. By extension, one of the things that one of the, the, the offshoots was, was Riot Girl. I mean, the Riot Girls, like Huggy Bear, were, were indie kids who were Pastels fans who then realised that they could go on and, and, and have their own say in how they saw things uh, with this music that was very derived from the whole kind of indie world. Fanzine culture was very important. It was a good thing. You had everyone was doing a fanzine. They looked good. They would have absolutely great writers like Kevin Pierce, who were writing intelligent things about politics and pop. Um, and to us, it was like this alternative world. So we thought the scene, or we thought all these singles were like top thirty hit singles, but in our own little weird world. Uh, we actually believed <laughs> that bands like the Bodines and uh, the June Brides and Hurrah should be top of the charts because we were very naive, but the naivety was part of the charm. Creation records at the beginning, buzzsaw punk guitars and a kind of lo-fi psychedelic thing. All the bands were different, but they were all they all had a similar kind of ethic. And Biff Bang Pow, which was Alan McGee, who ran Creations band, they were one of the better bands, and they 
they make great pop singles they make great kind of punk statements Big, bigger bands or kind of more popular bands that came out of, of that indie scene. You got Bell and Sebastian and Primal Scream, who started as a kind of birds copy band. St. Etienne, uh, all these groups were kind of very much based in the indie world. To what to me, there was a lot of different kinds of bands. So you had the Scottish bands who had a, well, eventually it became a kind of very big star, kind of harmony, Beach Boys kind of thing. You have the Pastels, who were very much the godfathers of the Scottish scene, which gave us all kinds of great bands like Jesse Garren and the Desperados, and ultimately bands like Teenage Fan Club and Bella Sebastian that were people that were part of that indie kid scene in, in well, Glasgow especially. Medway bands like the Dentists and the Claim, who were slightly more political. I mean, McCarthy, who, who, who came at Stereolab, they were incredibly political, very kind of Marxist. But the the political messages were wrapped up in this kind of very Birdsian guitar. You had the super groups like the Go-Betweens and the Smiths, who actually kind of crossed over. Uh, you had bands like the Primitives. when you, you explain it it's difficult to explain because all those bands meant something they all meant something to different to different people and that when you if you explain their music now it all sounds like it sounds the same but it didn't and it doesn't and it, but it probably does at the same time <laughs> I made a lot of friends in those days that I've, I've kept and I guess the glue, the kind of holy glue that binds us was this music and a belief that this music was quite important, um, which it wasn't, but it was, if that makes sense. And now indie pop is, I don't really know what it is anymore, it's just, it's, I think it's just another tag. If you have guitars and it's kind of quite white and middle class uh and sensitive and if there's a stripy t-shirt or two you call it indie pop but it didn't it doesn't resonate with the same way because it's just a, another tag or just another kind of um, convenient way to explain music that has become a, you know, like i said a facsimile of something that actually meant something important to people Behind 
What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. Our guest today is that rarest of breeds, a sportsman with great taste in music. Pat Nevin is a writer, broadcaster, football pundit and former Scottish international who played for Clyde, Chelsea, Everton, Tranmere Rovers, Kilmarnock and Motherwell during a 20-year professional career. He's got a new book on the way called The Accidental Footballer and that details how a music-obsessed indie kid somehow fell into the world of professional football. His good taste, gentle humour and genial personality has endeared him to football fans across the country and we are truly delighted to welcome him on to what goes around this afternoon to share his love of music. Hello, Pat. Hello, and I'm going to record that. That was lovely. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> sure I don't deserve it. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. It's been a real pleasure for me. I've, I've obviously, um, I'm the football fan of the, of the pair of us. Uh, and uh, I've I've heard you many many times over the years give uh, various commentaries, but I did I noticed I noticed every now and again, as soon as you got the chance, you just start talking about music, don't you? <laughs> I do, um, and I like dropping it in, you know. And the, the the real joy of it is to drop in band names or song titles, but the real <laughs> thing is to do it with nobody knowing except those who are in the know. Yes, the, those so, in the know. Uh, and classically, I've got lots of friends who are, are in bands. Most of my, my, my friends wouldn't be football people, they'd be musos. So um, they'll often say to me, well, I've got this new band, you've got to get them into a commentary. And uh, I always managed to get them into a commentary. So, uh, you know, there was one that really blew it for me because um, I had to get to a Radio 5 live commentary. I'd just been to see the pains of being pure at heart. <laughs> to be honest, that's not an easy one to get no. into commentary. Uh, I did manage to get it into the commentary between Arsenal and Manchester City, so I did manage it. Very good work. Uh, see, I, I always enjoy this kind of thing. I think Chris Packham, who does the uh, Spring Watch and that sort of thing, he got caught dropping Cure titles into his mm. his uh, links uh, a couple of years ago and never quite lived it down. So well, I, I, It's a good thing to do. It's, I don't know why I not live it down. It's actually just a bit of fun. But as long as it's not crowbarred, anyone can crowbar something. Yeah. If it actually works perfectly well within the sentence structure, then it's fine. Because if you don't know the band or the song, it still sounds perfectly good. So that's the kind of, if there's a skill in it, that's the skill. <laughs> How did you, you have to give us context there. Can you can you give us the sentence that you mentioned that last okay, band? Right, Arsenal are famous for being, they play too much football. It's very pretty the way they play. Or they used to play under Arsene Wenger, who was the manager at the time. And I'd just taken a band. I was DJing that night. One of the bands, I'd taken them up to Manchester because they were playing that night. But I was doing Man City the next day. And they'd said, get the pains of being pure at heart in. And about halfway through the game, the Man City were, Arsenal were down. And I, the commentator said, what's the problem with Arsenal? And I said, well, you know, Arsene Wenger, he's one of these managers. He doesn't want you to hoof the ball. He wants to do the, the right things the right way. He's almost artistic the way you do it. And, and he actually won't mind if you get beat trying to do the right things. But these are the pains of being pure at heart. This will oh. And it's, so, so this, it works, doesn't it? It works absolutely. That is good. That is really so, good. Back of the net. And, it, and if you don't know the pains of being pure at heart, that sounds a perfectly reasonable thing to say. So... Mm. If slightly florid. 
<laughs> no, I think that's beautiful. I, I think it's, uh, you know, for someone like me who is an indie kid who likes a bit of football rather than the other way around, um, it, it's a delight to uh, to find someone like yourself who really has that joy because let's be honest, uh, the... The types of music, I'm a Man United fan for my sins, and uh, the type of music that's generally associated during the glory years of Man United was Mick Hucknall, Simply Red, and Tina Turner, and, you know, Drive Time Classics, and basically a lot of bad music. And I always wondered, um, you know, because I was always the kid at school who had the slightly off taste. I was always the the one who had the left field records and and was into all the, the enemy and reading all those things. Um, and I always felt slightly out of the the loop when everyone else was going into, oh, I really love Duran Duran or whatever I'm into, you know what I mean? Um, so I'm just thinking, what must that have been like for you going into the hyper macho world uh, and, let's be honest, kind of bland musical taste world of football? What was that like? Um, it was like the world because <laughs> that's what the world's like. And my um, analogy would be how many people used to listen to Daytime Radio 1 compared to how many people used to listen to John Peel. Mm-hmm. It was still a small cohort of a bigger music listening grouping of society. So me being the odd one out, trying really hard to find somebody else in the team who had maybe shared some of my interests mm-hmm. uh, in music. Well, that's kind of normal because only a small percentage of people, you know, there's more people buying Mariah Carey records than, than are, are out there buying Colter Twins records, you know, it's just the way it is, you know, and I just have to deal with it, and I, it didn't bother me I had a bit of a laugh with it because I started, I was quite into technology when technology was really early and rough, mm. so I remember when video recorders were first brought out, so I recorded every single music programme and indeed uh, a number of football programmes and things like that from abroad, and I started cutting and pasting as in cutting up tapes, putting them together and making these two-hour tapes or videos to put on the team coaches for the last <sighs> to watch mm. on the way up and down. And just in that kind of, I would say sweet spot, in the spot where stuff that didn't give me a headache like George Michael, but they might quite put up with kind of thing. And there wasn't many in that sweet spot, yeah. very, very few. But then I try and... So, but then I get bored and I put on a fall track and I blow it completely. Did they appreciate your efforts or were they like, did they kind of get tired of you trying to, trying to subtly influence their music taste? I think they knew I was winding them up and, <laughs> winding, and also very importantly, winding myself up. And that's a kind of important thing as well. But the thing that people do forget because it's an age thing, um, about two years into my career, there was a new discovery or a new piece of uh, technology, the Sony Walkman, yeah. and life changed forever. I could, I'd take this peel show the night before, headphones on, sit in the coach and read a book, and that was it. So it changed a bit after that. I stopped doing that. But they were interesting people. I mean, I always looked out for within the football world. I mean, you said you're a Manchester United fan there. I mean, well, my best friend was Brian McClare, who used to oh, play for Manchester United. So Brian and I, our taste in music quite often, you know, not exactly gelled, but we had kind of interest, interest in uh, sort of outre left field stuff. So mm-hmm. that was always the odd person. And now and again, I would try and get uh, one of the young players coming through and I would, you know, try and kind of uh, make him my slight acolyte. Yeah. <laughs> <Screw> him. <laughs> I did. And I, and I made a mistake with one. I did too good a job in one of them. And he ended up taking over my persona of the, the kind of arty, 
lefty indie kind of uh, oh. player, and much more than me. So, but Graham Lasso, good luck to you. <laughs> oh, of course, of course, yeah. He, um, was, my, he was my young actor like that I took under my wing, and uh, but he's a great lad, and we're still great friends. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned DJing moments ago, and I know that you played at, at ATP Festival as well. How, how did that sort of come about? Was that something that you took to doing kind of parallel to, to playing football? I've always done lots of things in parallel to playing football. I've always written. I mean, Eamon's mentioned the NME. I used to write under an assumed name for the NME when I was playing football. Um, I used to write for other people. Um, I had other massive other interests. Um, and one of them was DJing, and I've, and I've kind of done it since I was like 17, 18. The thing is, and you'll know it yourself, in, in the indie world, you can do that and it won't get out, mm. or else it didn't until somebody invented Twitter. <laughs> so I had this nice, cute little number where I could go around and play small clubs in Oxford or Newcastle or Glasgow or, you know, anywhere, down the ATP, which is a good thing in itself. But that was, it's funny you talk about that, um, that Bowley one that was, that one was done by Bill and Sebastian, but were, all the bands that I really liked were there. Kind I was of, there, I was there at that were you one. there? I was, Bill and Sebastian, yeah. If you're talking about the one that was, uh, that was in uh, Butlins or... Um, yeah, the se- so the yeah. second, the second, that was Bowley too. So, well, I was the last DJ in the last night ah. and, uh, and it was one of the best, the most fantastic ever because... Every band, you know, Franz Ferdinand were there, Julian Cope was there, a lot of stuff that, you know, Teenage Fan Club, great band I adore as well. But at the end of it, the last night, I don't know if you stayed for that last night, I was doing the DJ. And there was two or three different places to DJ, but everyone seemed to come into where mine was and all the bands were there. And it was just the best DJ night I've ever had in my life. And the place was absolutely jumping. But the very best part of it was every time I put a track on, and as parents would walk on and start dancing, and then I'd immediately seg into a friend's Ferdinand track, and off it would go because <laughs> indie kids, indies, they just can't do it. They can't dance to their own music. Even Stuart from Bells couldn't do it. He was off. As soon as I put a, a, a Bell and Sebastian track on and uh, managed to get Tracy and the camera obscura as well, as soon as she started dancing. Um, and then, but anyway, it was lots and lots of fun that night. But that was actually when Twitter started, just mm. round about then, that's when it got big. And it was after that, I'd been DJing for years, and it was after that that everyone goes, oh, you DJ now, do you? And I'm thinking, yeah, for 25 years. <laughs> Maybe they got wind of that of that legendary night closing off ATP. I'm trying to remember if I was there or not. I remember Bell and Sebastian DJing um, in the venue next to the playground. It's all a haze, you know yourself, by the end yeah. of the weekend of ATP. And that was great. I was, I was on one till three Oh, oh wow! Okay, right. and it was brilliant. It was a, it was fun, fun times, and um, fun. So I was really keen to go to the the recent one they had in the boat. Well, recent, <laughs> recent as you can get with gigs. The one they had in the the boat. Um, oh, and I was desperate to go, but I just couldn't get away from work, and I was I was devastated by that. But the DJ is great. The, can I underline? Look, and I know you're a real DJ, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, come I on, but you're a real DJ. That, but I just do it for fun. I don't make money out of it or anything like that. None and of it, us do. No, exactly. <laughs> do, you do it for the love of it, don't you? And meeting people, finding new music, all that sort of stuff. And the buzz of one of those nights when they go right. I, I regularly DJ in a place in Dalston. Um, so, and it's 
it's just a great bunch of people there. Which and place? That's local. We're both in Hackney. Yeah, we're, we're Hackney. All so. oh, right. So you know, yeah. so it's um, it's called Scared to Dance the night, oh. um, and a lot of lot of interesting people DJ uh, there. I mean, really, really interesting. But it is very indie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of love I kind of love that side. Of it. I mean, it's not purely that. I mean. I'll go really quite wide. I mean, you're really, really wide and Catholic as long as you can make people dance and people enjoy dancing to it. Um, but it's certainly heavily skewed to that kind of uh, independency. Well, I always think that's, uh, you know, because you're a lot of people when they when they hear the word indie now, they kind of think of this genre of music. But I'm sure you're old enough like me uh, to remember that re- originally indie just meant you weren't on a major label. And the original indie charts, they had, um, they had kind of an Oog, PWL. All of that was in the indie charts. And it was next to The Shaman. And it was next to The Wolf Tones. And it was next to, you know, um, a guy called Cheryl. Well, well, it, la- it was labels, wasn't it? it was, yeah. if you could be 4AD, you could be Factory, you could be Fiction, you could be all the exactly, labels, right? Yeah. So, but Stockhead and Walk, Walkman, they were, a, they were an indie. To be fair, it was a bit of a scam and a bit of a cheat at that point in time because there were one or two that sneaked into the indie charts that way. It's not what they were supposed to be about. Yeah. What it was, it was a very good way of, you know, getting away past the clutter that was, you know, daytime radio one and the stuff that was mm. being sold by the the massive corporations. Uh, and, and that's yeah, that's where the name started. But we all know there's scenes within scenes, and as mm. long I mean the whole fair indie scene, which is which I happen to quite like. In fact, I really like. Which you obviously Bill Sebastian, the kind of king, stroke queens of. Um, with Cam Skewers and all the rest of it. I, I love that scene, but it's not the only one. There's lots of other brown stuff around. And with a period there, there was some amazing stuff coming out of Brooklyn. Sweden's had a great, you know, period of time with producing some of my favourite bands as well. It, it kind of doesn't matter where you find them. But the Scared to Dance thing is good because you, you play, play a lot of what would be known as really well-known indie t- tracks. But if I, I remember recently, a while back, I, just when you've got everyone going, you know what it's like when everyone's really going and it's mm. you we're going for it together here, guys, kind of thing. And I'm thinking, right, I'm going to take it somewhere weird now, you know. And, <laughs> That's and the buzz, yeah. And it, it's, it's the best feeling ever, isn't it? When yeah. you go, yeah, and I'm not a big Rolling Stones fan. I remember mm. played, I I did some mixing, I'd mixed a, a Rolling Stones track with it was called 2000 Light Years from Home, which mm. is a very psychedelic track of theirs. But it's get a really good danceable beat, but it's it's, it's psychedelia. Mm. Uh, and I took out the middle eight and things like that, so it kept on going and faded it all together. And uh, the place went mad. <laughs> I don't know if anyone in there knew the song, but it didn't matter because it was, it was just a great moment. And those moments like these, they love you, don't they? They're just mm-hmm. they're just perfect. When you do that and it goes right and everyone goes with you, it's just the best thing ever. Of course, you always risk alienation with the move like that, but you know, oh, who yes. cares really? you can build it up it takes you two songs to get it back doesn't it yeah exactly and here's you saying you're not a real dj pad yeah you're talking like (laughs) a pro talking like a pro anyone who knows that they're always on the knife edge between killing it and clearing it that's (laughs) i'm going to say something odd to you and i don't know if you've ever done this before the dj i like killing it now and again Mm. i actually quite like it um because you you can actually get it too high too early mm-hmm. and you think i've got two hours to go here yeah then yeah. They're, they're not going to get this yeah. no, i can't go for that but you know and it's like, like wait a minute let's slow this down a bit take it somewhere else for a wee while um, and yeah. 
can remember trying to do that once, and it was, uh, I'm trying to think who it was, um, I guess you put on a My Bloody Valentine track, right, okay. Well, sort the men from the boys. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I thought, well, that'll kill it for a wee while, but it was, it was a fabulous, fabulous mix by um, Andy. Andy Weatherall. Weatherall, right. I, I don't know if you know the mix, but yeah, it's brilliant. I'm, I'm, I'd, I'd taken that mix, and I'd worked with that mix myself and put it together with the original track, and mm. uh, I thought, well, this will kill it for a good nine minutes, you know, give people a chance to get a rest and a drink. And they went mental. I went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> didn't see that coming. Oh, yeah. so that's a great thing in itself. You're actually, uh, so you're not just like chucking on a few sevens and stuff. You're, you're actually getting in there and doing your own little edits as well and playing yeah, music. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. But, I mean, some tracks just aren't right, aren't full. Yeah. There's one particular Bowie track that I, I, mean, I like the number of, there's another great Bowie tracks that fabulous to dance to mm. there's one or two where the, actually the beats off mm. you think well, actually especially in the second half of the song you think well you st- people start looking at each other so what you do is you weave another one into it and you can mix it and it's not the most complex mixing you've ever seen in your life but you can do that and I, i've known again just for maybe to make one song work but don't you can't do that with four, four songs in a row yeah, we know you can't do that because you do that, you're stuck to four songs, and that's a disaster waiting to happen. You don't never do anything like that because that's apart from that, it slightly feels immoral. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's just the fact that you can make a complete arse of that. Let's be honest. <laughs> Should we dig into your phonographic memories then? Let's get started uh, with your first choice, which is uh, a Joy Division track, Decades. Tell us about your connection to this one. Well, I'm very, I'm very open about my history because I'm quite, quite old. Um, I go before punk. So before punk, I've lived, I like Bowie, like most people would have done. But I'll be honest, I was a big Floyd, Pink Floyd fan and Genesis fan. Um, and, you know, if anyone who listened to Peel at the time was, because there was this crossover period in 76 where it's half Led Zeppelin, Genesis and half Anarchy in the UK. Mm-hmm. It was a weird, weird tunnel of period. And I remember it really well. Um but I can remember, you know, moving into that and thinking, I'm going this different direction. I found Joy Division and just thought, oh my God, that's that's seriously different. And I did like a lot of punk stuff, but it just it just hit me as look, they've they've taken this whole punk thing and taken it post-punk to somewhere phenomenally different. And um, it happened to be an interesting time in my life as well because. I had this odd thing where I was playing a lot of football because I love playing football. It's brilliant fun, but I absolutely didn't want to be a footballer. Mm-hmm. And it's the weirdest thing, right? So for other people, for me, that's perfectly natural. You know, <laughs> it's, you do something you like. I had other things to do. I was studying. I was other things. I, I was normal. I was, and mm-hmm. so footballers are all weird. Used to, my nickname was weirdo with the footballers, right? For years. <laughs> And That's I used a to, subtle nickname. Footballers aren't known for subtlety, though, are they? Yeah, but, but I thought I was the normal one, and they were all weird. Mm. And I still think that's the case because <laughs> I've got normal interests, like I go to theatre, cinema, you know, interest in arts. That's normal. That didn't make me weird, but just within that culture, it was always said in a friendly way. I was kind of accepted within the kind of group. But when I was kind of getting into football and doing the studying, doing the degree and playing football at the same time, I kind of didn't mix with the players at all mm. because I'd gone this different direction and I'd discovered bands like particularly Joy Division really absolutely done it for me. And a girlfriend at the time was going out with me. We absolutely loved the band. And then 
when I mean Unknown Pleasures is a brilliant album, love it to death. I mean it's phenomenal grip to it. Every single's brilliant as well. But you know, the the last couple of tracks are the second side of Closer and particularly Decades. Um kinda don't know if you need to be punk, post punk, you could be Verdi, you could be anyone. And if you write that piece of music, it's genius. Just absolutely bizarrely the most beautiful uh, piece of music, and then you stick maybe atmosphere behind yes. it as well, mm. and you're just thinking that's two of the most beautiful pieces of music that have been put together by anyone in this planet ever. It's staggeringly beautiful, the words and of course the music as well. And it was a great time because it, it kind of nailed as you. I could understand that. Wait a minute, I'm not going in another direction. Because back to the question you were talking about there. You know, you're asking about um, how did you fit in? Well, I didn't. I didn't mm. want to. I yeah. want life. That, that's how you fit in. You, you, yeah. you had your own corner. Yeah, you just don't fit. You don't need to. You can fit in and play it and be nice and pleasant. And, and I often say to people, do you hang about with all the people at your work all the time? <laughs> and they go, that, oh, yeah, That's a very good point. <laughs> exactly. And, it's, and because you're fed this thing in the media that all the players are all battling in the trenches together. It's garbage most of the time, mm. to be fair. You know, because it doesn't make any sense anyway because they're so selfish because they have to be because it's unbelievably elite. It's extraordinarily competitive. Mm. I'm sitting here, and it's the only area in life that I was, ever was competitive. I'm sitting here in the dressing room and you're sitting there, right? Oh, we're best mates. I'm fighting in the trenches with you. And by the way, I want your job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, fair enough. You know, let's be honest. There is this mad dynamics going on there, that sort of stuff. So I needed to be out of that. And to go out of that and find my other love, which was music and that crowd, mm. that was brilliant. And, I, that, and that's why that friends that I met through going to gigs around about that time, and this is late 70s, 78, 79, that sort of thing in Glasgow, 
And of course, Glasgow had the most amazing scene at the time. Mm. They oh, did yeah. a lot of the postcard stuff. Um, I, I always say, and I have to be honest about it, I, I'll never lie about my, there was a wee band at the time who I absolutely loved. And they were called Simple Minds. Um, yeah, I, early Simple Minds are so like they get they get they got such a bad press because they became this massive monolithic kind of success. But you know, the first five maybe Simple yeah. Minds albums are absolutely innovative and artistic and thoughtful and thought provoking. And I really, I get chippy when people you know, roll their eyes if you say you like Simple Minds because they just haven't listened. Those early albums are, they, you know, they're talking about art and travel and, you know, things that people didn't talk about very much in music in 1980. I mean, they were affected by, they, that was more, that was closer to Kraftwerk. It was closer to, mm. you know, the Berlin Trilogy with Bowie, all that sort of stuff. That's what that was. And it was that European kind of feel to it. And to be fair, I went to see them a lot in those early days, you know, from Real, Real Cacophony and empires and dance and all that sort of period and it was a group of us in glasgow who hung about and went there and they were tiny they were a small band but they mm -hmm. were pretty astonished at the time so it was a lot there was a real buzz about glasgow and, uh, but you know the, the other side of it you know everyone from the images to you know the pastels and there was it yeah. was a great great time i'm just curious and this isn't really a music related question but i know you have a book out to this uh effect yeah. but like you say that the playing football uh that you know at a professional level is obviously very elite and yet it was something that you weren't that interested in doing like how good at football do you have to be to be like <laughs> oh you want me to come play oh I, I don't really want to be a professional footballer but i guess i can come and you know yeah, give it a I was, try as all in the book uh, and it's weird it's i try to explain it to people because the classic i mean even my sister said this she went that's rubbish. You always loved football. And I went, yeah, but I didn't want to be a football. <laughs> she it doesn't make sense, but it's totally and utterly proved. Chelsea tried to sign me for a year and I went, no, I'm pretty happy <laughs> doing my degree. I'm wow. just Glasgow. I'm, I'm happy. You know, why give away happiness? I remember my mum said to me uh, when I was uh, a youth, uh, she, she, the only footballer she really liked was Martin O'Neill. Because he told Man United he was going to finish his law degree first. <laughs> and said, that's your role model right there. Get, follow him. And it's doable. It's doable. It's hard, but it's, it's kind of doable. I mean, McClare, who I mentioned before, he was doing maths in, at Glasgow University as well. So, you know, there's a possibility. It's hard to, to juggle them. And in the end, I didn't do the final year of the degree. But when I was playing, I wanted to play it for the love of it. And I, mm -hmm. I, it's like music. I play music for the love of it. You don't play it for anything. I don't like, I'm not trying to earn money. Some people have to, yes. Uh, I play football for the love of it, and I never wanted to lose that. And I have this concept in my life um, where if you do anything that's creative, you know, whatever area of the arts or writing or whatever, if you do it because you need to make money, it's fine, it's good, it's okay. You'll be better if you do it because you love it. Yeah. You really will be better because you're not stressed by that. You're letting it flow and your your mind expands and allows to. Well, certainly it works with me. And I felt that about the playing football. I loved the artistic side of it. And that's exactly what I wanted to keep. Um, and I also thought it was a bit stupid, really. Look, the numbers didn't work. I mean, what percentage of kids want to be a footballer and end up managing a whole career out of it? I didn't like those numbers. They didn't work for me. So 
that's why I, I kept on with, with studying and did that. And it was it was really very strange. You know, I think I was about thirty when I thought, "Oh, all right, I'll be a footballer." <laughs> I've been one for about twelve years. <laughs> you must be. You must like to be um, to not be attracted to the idea of of making money and getting notoriety and fame. I mean, not just with the football, but what you're talking about with DJing as well. You must have to be a very self-assured, unnaturally self-assured person, especially as a young person, to not be attracted to the the sort of glory side of things. Oh, you're good. <laughs> oh, you're good. That's a brave, I, I'm, that's I'm, I'm not just trying to pay you a compliment. I'm just no, very curious. No, that's one of the best questions of possible statements that anyone's ever asked me in an interview. It's brilliantly to understand the concept because people don't understand the concept. You clearly do because, no, I didn't have any interest in fame. I saw, I saw it for what it was when I was like 16. It's just ephemeral nonsense. Um, money, does it make you that happy? I, I just wanted enough to get by and I could probably do that being a teacher. You know, I, I've, no, I've no interest in... A flashy car. I've never had or, or anything like that. I don't have any interest. I kind of like buying the music I want to buy, but I'm wearing the scruffy old jumper, and I don't care what I wear either. You know, it's, so I've never had that. So if that is that self-assuredness myself, it might be. It might be. But, but it's just comfort, yeah. comfort in what you want in life, and thinking those things that other people see as important and for, worth striving for. I. I I can't see it, you know, and power. I mean, why would you want power? <laughs> why do you want power? And it's like when you look at people who have lots of keys on their key ring, I just think, no, every key is a responsibility. I don't I don't want a big key ring. I just want to get in my house and I want to get out of my house. And that's everything. Then it, I'm like you, you know, I just, I, I don't really. You uh, love the glory, Eamon. What are you talking about? I, I, should, but I, love, I love the feeling of being up there and, you know, everyone getting crazy when I'm DJing and that sort of thing. Funny. I love all that. I really do enjoy that. But um, as Pat says, I, I, I would, if I'm not DJing, and I haven't been, obviously, because of the pandemic, every Saturday, I just DJ in my front room. I, you know, if I, when I'm not actively DJing, I'm actively listening to music. It's what makes me tick. And although um, I would probably be uh, less virtuous, so, you know, offer me a million pounds, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> if you want to you want to throw adulation at me, I'll probably take that too. But I think um, it, there's a definite artistic sensibility where really what really matters, what really draws me into music, and I'm sure it's the same for you, is that it, it touches something in the back of your soul. It touches little parts of your brain and your heart that just they can't be touched by you know having 50 quid in your pocket they can't be touched by um you know a very responsible job or more and more success or you know none of that really matter when you listen to something your choice joy division and joy division in 1980 they weren't about glamour were they they were they were they were like the opposite they were black and white they were talking you didn't about see pictures of them. that was the point you didn't see them they weren't yeah. on the album covers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, so they're almost they're the antithesis of that. It's just the art. It was just yeah. the music. It was just the sound. It was just the words. That's all it was. And um, and the artwork in the front, which was fabulous. Um, but you're absolutely right. That's another thing that drew me to them. That I I could see a kind of a mirror of what I kind of wanted, which was be doing it. I mean, I, I love the idea of when I did play football professionally. 
I wanted to be good at it. And there's this dichotomy that people don't understand that, yeah, you want to win, you want to be good at it. And it was really, really good. But other than that, to be held up as... And, mm. and the, the, do you know what the worst thing is? Then people will say, oh, you must be very deep. So you get more interest. <laughs> no, no, I don't want that. No, that's exactly the opposite of what I want. <laughs> it backfires. Just leave me alone with the records. Just leave me alone. A classic, a, a, a classic one is... Um, a lot of the, I think, life's... I, mean, I, I did all that thing when I was younger, listening to Joy Division and reading Camus and Dostoevsky and all that stuff, right? Great, lovely, wonderful, right? But you got to lighten up. And there's a danger of getting too earnest, right? And that's a massive danger, especially when you're young. But if you read you know, Douglas Adams or when you're older and listening to Monty Python, you, stand, you start learning the real lessons. And one of the lessons is that, talking about power there. I mean, anyone who ever seeks power should be automatically never been allowed to get any, right? Yes, yes. That's the Douglas Adams like, And he wasn't the first person to say it, but you should never get power if you want it, right? So what happened with me is I kept getting offered these powerful jobs. And I'm going, I don't want it. <laughs> but it's a weird thing. It just kept on following me throughout my whole life. And that meant chairman of the PFA in England, you know. Yeah. I don't want it. But they, they gave me it, like, voted me. And I'm going, I didn't put myself on the ballot. <laughs> and it's a, it's a it's a weirdest thing, and that's why that I had to end up writing that book. Mm. It's because people were saying, "Well, you must be desperate to get power," and I'm going, "No, you don't get it." She's going to say, "Maybe you could be our reluctant next prime minister." Probably doing a better job. <laughs> They're asking me about recently. Can you sum up that book of yours? I mean, uh, I tried really hard not to be a footballer, and I failed. I do feel uh, a little bit of a, a segue here where we talk about this kind of um sort of going under the radar none of the pictures on the on the cover and a kind of a sort of uh, the obscurity being kind of the draw in a way and your next uh phonographic memory is the Cocteau Twins Musket and Drums and I, th I can't think of a better example of that where the Cocteau Twins were a band that never appeared on their covers. They did very, very few appearances on TV, maybe a handful. I used to have them all on VHS at one stage. Um, and, they, you know, even the, the lyrics are, certainly in the earlier albums, are almost incomprehensible and deliberately... They are incomprehensible. <laughs> so what, is, it, is that the same sort of thing that drew you there? Because I think what's interesting about that is that while there is a darkness to the Cocteau Twins, it's, uh, it's kind of a more beautiful, maybe hopeful sound occasionally. I don't know. They have their dark moments, but it's, it's certainly not Joy Division. If you get me. It's beauty. It's absolute beauty. It's purity. Um, and it's just a, a lush gorgeousness. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, there's, there was certainly, uh, after punk, there was this kind of thing where you can't, you can't do that sort of thing. You can't be beautiful. You can't have yeah. a, a punk aesthetic and, you know, do this absolutely staggeringly beautiful music that's got great guitar. You know, it's okay, it's got a wall of sound beside, behind it. and it's got, But the, the beauty of it, and I remember... Oddly enough, the Cocteau Twins. So I've chosen Musette and Drum from uh, Head Over Heels. Now, in actual fact, it's one of the few albums, um, really few albums, if I'm absolutely brutally honest about it, I wouldn't give a stuff which track you played. Couldn't care less. They're all... I think, I think it was eight or nine 
of those tracks were in the Peel Festive 50 that year. Yeah. And by the way, they then released a four-track EP along with it. And three of them were in the Festive 50 as well. <laughs> and it was, it was just this perfect moment. Because I'd, I'd first heard them uh, in a Peel show one night, and I was halfway through one of those songs. Um, called, uh, it's called Wax and Wayne from the first album. Oh, brilliant track, yeah. And I was halfway through it. And I'm writing it, and I've got a pen ready. I've got a bad paper. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not going to miss this one. <laughs> that, no, she's having those days. <laughs> I, I will know everything about this band within a week. And yeah. it, it took a week in those days. You couldn't just go up online. I knew from the moment. I, I wasn't halfway through the first the first track I'd heard from them. And there is something that you can't, that thing you're talking about there, it's inside you. You don't can't explain what it is, but you know it's sometimes, a vo- with me, it's often a voice you quite often a Scottish one, um, <laughs> but it's also a kind of beautiful ethereal thing as well, but I kind of know it, and I kind of feel it, and it kind of touches me, and it, they're very different styles sometimes, I mean, the most recent one was a band called Spook School, mm. and I just, the first track I heard them, I'm, I'm going to get everything you do, and it's, they're great, I love them, I love them to death, um, but anyway, the cocktails, I immediately thought, well, this is, you can't write a song as good as that, mm. and not have other stuff. And then they just kept on getting better. And uh, certainly, it reminds me of a time I'd gone down to Chelsea. I'd, I'd finally relented after a year worth of hassle from Chelsea and signed for them with the idea of going down there for two years. And the concept would be, uh, well, two years. I'll never get in the first team anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have a nice time. London's an interesting city. I'd been there a couple of times before. Um, and there's lots of bands down there. Uh, and by the way, I might meet John Peel because he hangs about there. <laughs> and, and also, there's a, and there's a bit of football in the background. So, and uh, so I went down, and as soon as I got down, and, and I weirdly within weeks, I got in the first team, and I was like 19, and I was a scrawny wee kid, and I looked nothing like everybody else. And then I got played a year that first year, and it's like. This is bizarre. <laughs> this is just, I, I'm not even supposed to get in the team, you know. But what, what it did happen is we got a bonus for winning games. Right? It was one week we'll win two games and I got a bonus and it came to about 500 quid. And honestly, the record shops around where I lived it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but what I also did was bought the tickets for all the gigs I wanted to see for the next three or four months. Yeah. Which is quite cheap to go. And one of them was the Cocteau Twins. Uh, doing that album. And it goes back to what you'd mentioned there before, because Liz sang that night and something happened that night. Um, and I've, I've heard of many things and been brilliant, 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 but something happened that night where at the end of one of the songs, because big Cocteau Twins fans were there, but the power of it and the beauty of her voice, at the end of a couple of songs, nobody clapped. Well, you know you've done it then, yeah. Just stood there with their mouths open. And it was spine tingling.
I, you know, I, I think it's happened to me once again about a year and a half ago. I was in an audience where that happened again. Mm. That's how long it's taken. That's 30 years mm. between me actually seeing it, feeling it and being part of it and, and thinking it as well. So um, it, it's those moments. It's those moments where all the love of music, all the moments you've got, the sitting back, playing records, DJing, whatever, sharing it with someone you love, all that sort of stuff. But there, there are moments like that that are just, just worth living for, you know, and mm. yeah, fantastic. Can I touch on this friendship with John Peel? Because you mentioned going down to London, you finally relented and you said, okay, Chelsea, I'm going to I'm gonna come and play for you, fine, you know, after being pestered for a year. And you thought London would be cool because among other things, I can, John Peel hangs out there, maybe I'll bump into him. And then <laughs> this notion <laughs> turns into a solid reality. How did that come about? Uh, right, okay, I will admit to it. <laughs> <laughs> So when I went to Chelsea and things went well, they had a, a Chelsea Football Club newspaper. Mm. And they said, well, you're a smart kid. Do you want to write for it? And I went, yeah, all right. I'll write a column every month. Yeah, no problem. About music. <laughs> Obviously not about football. And they were like, what? We wanted you to talk about the dressing room. I went, no, I'll do a music column for you. So I did a music column. And of course, about six months into it, I thought, well, why don't I try and interview that guy, John Peel? And I went to him and I said, look, why don't I interview him? He's, he's a football fan, he's into music, you know, and uh, it would just be that. Nothing got to do with the fact that he's my hero. <laughs> just, I quite liked it. So I wrote to him, and they said, yeah, and I, th- I wrote to him. And he, he wrote back very quickly and just said, look, we're very busy just now. Um, I said, could you do an interview with the Bridge News and my column, Hook Lines? And he wrote back and he said, he's very busy just now, maybe sometime in the future. And for the first, last, and only time in my entire life, I hate myself for it. I wrote another letter saying, uh, well, sorry, John, thanks for your letter recently, but um, uh, my team, who I play for, ah. Chelsea, <laughs> are playing your team, Liverpool, in a few weeks. That's why I wanted to do it sooner rather than later. Now, it's not exactly do you know who I am. Ah, but it's a good end, I think. It's a good end. Use what you got. Yeah. yeah. And I, 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 I couldn't, I've never done that in my life ever since or before. But I, I just thought I'd like to do the interview. Anyway, he phoned up two days later. And said, <laughs> just see you, idiot. And yeah, well, I, think, I think he's one of those ones that, you know, uh, whereas you're a footballer who kind of really wants to talk about music. He was kind of the music guy that really wanted to play for Liverpool, didn't he? That was his, his thing. He I loved mean, them. Well, you can see where, why yeah. we got on. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's, we're both utter outsiders within what was. I mean, how how... The John Luke with the other Radio One DJs at the time, um, <laughs> and if you look at it with the, the amount of things, and we were neither, none of us, neither of us looking for the fame and adulation side of it, and the kind of the kind of glitzy, glammy side of it. We weren't interested in that. We loved the art of it, um, and both of our sort of passions were the same ones. We just one of us happened to be in one, and one of us happened to be in the other, and it was just. I mean, I've written a lot about it in the book. I mean, a lot about John and I, and things we had together in this book um but you know to find myself within a year and a bit basically in the studio with john and he's doing playing the records and me with a couple of his friends who were roughly my age at the time as well and have stayed friends ever since writing down the, the serial numbers and make sure that the artists all get paid mm. and john would never mention i was in you know it would, now and again he would say well the famous footballers in tonight but never ever nobody knew who it was 
and it, which wow. is exactly what I wanted. Yeah, he outed me once. I have to say, he admitted he outed me once because uh, I was playing against Liverpool and I scored. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't let it lie. <laughs> you crossed a line, Pat. You crossed a line. Yeah. And he said he's lying. I can remember. It. I mean, because I get the headlines in the papers, which I could couldn't give a stuff about, right? <laughs> But I wanted to know what Peely said Monday night. Yeah. <laughs> I was like recording it, listening to it, and Peely's going, right, Nevin, uh, I'm pushing it far too far. Any more of that behaviour, and I'm going to get that that video of ripping your arms that you gave me, and I'm going to tape over this <laughs> open university. <laughs> we had this kind of fun thing going. And it just, I just, I'm a loved again, because yeah. his shyness always just, his shyness just stunned me, because so many of us had such a high regard for him, but his self-belief was just ridiculously small, you know, in comparison to how highly regarded he was. And it was just good fun. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Maybe we'll move on to your third phonographic memory and you can, you can introduce it yourself. Cause I think, I think we, we can see it's going to be a special one for you. Yeah. Well, the first two that I mentioned, I think we're back to when I was very young, but I have, I've never stood still with music. It's like with Peely. You're always looking on, you're looking for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, something new. I'm not dumping the stuff in the past, but I, I want to hear the next thing. Mm. Um, and I kind of get stuck. Something happened near the end of my career at football. Um, I ended up being a chief executive, which I didn't want to do again, um, and playing at the same time for a top club. And it was horrendous. I hated mm. it. I absolutely hated it. Um, and, I, after, and I just thought, well, why am I doing this? Why am I here? And I was doing it as a favour to somebody who... Anyway, and I needed I needed some beauty in my life, and I'd mm. lost it, and I had to get away from it. And around about that time, something started stirring in Glasgow again. So, you know, mid nineties, kind of late nineties, mm. and you started getting, as I say, Bell and Sebastian, who I mentioned before, but Camera Obscura came in, and it was another one of those nights. I was, I was sitting in, in the car driving home late at night one night, mm. and. Camera Scura come on and played, and I was halfway through the song. And stop this car, get that notebook out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm right onto it. And they hadn't, honestly, they hadn't finished the song halfway through it. And I thought, I, this could be the band I've been looking for. Mm-hmm. And if not, because I've loved lots and lots of bands, and I love the go between to a passion, millions and millions of bands, right? Mm-hmm. But there are certain bands that are just yours, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I just kind of knew from Tracy Ann's voice. And uh, so I've I got home and I looked up as much as I could, but this time you could do internet. Mm-hmm. And uh, found out they were playing in Glasgow the next night. Went to see them the next night. Um, and the track 80s fans, one I would pr- probably pick, but another one of those bands, the first three albums. I mean, I love all the stuff, all the Tissian stuff, but first three albums, not one single average track. Everyone I love with passion. But what it is, it's the beauty and the purity of it. Tell me 
bit like the old days of C86. Yeah. But this is slightly different, I think, because there's a purity in some of these bands that don't hide for the fact that they're kind of seen as fluffy by some people, but they're not. Some of the, the songwriting by Tracy Ann's as good as Ben and Beyond for ABBA. I mean, it's just amazing her songwriting. Um, but went to see them in, in that first, it was a hilarious, can I tell you a quick story of going to see them Please. first thing? Right. I'd drive 100 miles for where I live, because I live in the middle of nowhere, right? Drive 100 miles to Glasgow, desperate to get to this gig. Phoned them, phoned the, the venue before, can I buy a ticket? No, no, you, they won't be sold out. They're tiny wee band, nobody's interested. Got all the way up there to the Brell, in the, which is a lovely place in the west end of Glasgow. And I got there. The guy in the door said, no, no, we're full. <sighs> well, I've 200 mile round trip, I phoned before, you can't let that. Sit. And the, there's people looking around going, and by this point, I'm actually also doing television in Scotland at the time. So people are seeing this kind of weird television personality. I mean, I, that was a good decision for somebody who wanted to stay at the limelight, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> tell you. always get everything right as you could probably tell so and eventually the not a shouting but I'm saying oh, come on ask me. you can get one more and do us a favour mate anyway this girl sort of looked around from behind the the, uh, the bouncer and said oh he's on the guest list and I went oh thanks <laughs> okay. Fine. I went and I thanked her and chatted to her and she was a very nice girl and that was Tracy Ann <laughs> ah, lovely. She went, and I didn't know this, and then she goes and stands up and starts singing. Wow. Uh, and they became um, the reason for telling you all that is the music's beautiful. I love the music. There was a kind of you know, um, there's a lot of the things that the place that I would DJ at. There are these clubs like the Pop Club, the Winchester, the Un Unpop, that are kind of these indie pop clubs around um, the, the country. At that time, there was one or two in Glasgow. And they were, they were my lifeline, the absolute mm -hmm. lifeline. I would go there, and the bells were there, and Cameron Skewer were there, and we all became, I became great, great friends with them. And as as much as anything else, they were just fabulous, fabulous people. And I, I actually needed, and this sounds odd, but I needed friends at the time, mm -hmm. lots of friends. But I needed us, needed away from this corporate life that was trying to drag me. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I, I finally found this beauty and this purity with these people and their music and it was it was a joyous thing to have and then then they, every album they produced was just totally brilliant i, I could still I, I won't tell you stories forever about it because i could i mean i went to <laughs> we went to john peel's birthday party 65th yeah. and, and camera school were, were, were the guests they were yeah. playing that night because john was that was the next band that john was going to push mm -hmm. like he pushed undertones or whatever camera school would be, be huge by now had john lived Mm -hmm. um, and it was just the most beautiful, perfect, fantastic night. And but I'd actually had to fly down and get a tr get a driver to. Dr I don't do flashy things, right? Fly down, get a driver in the morning, get to Suffolk, do that party thing with John. It was brilliant. And coming through again, John was great, and she was fabulous. And got an another car back, got two hours sleep, flew back in the morning to get to. This. So I basically had two hours sleep to do this mm -hmm. job. Um, but I, I'd say to my wife, I, I need to see John. I just need to see John. Mm -hmm. Well, see him next year. And he was dead two weeks later. Oh, that's uh, devastating. I, no idea. Well, I've never done anything like that before. Mm. And I kept on saying to my wife, I've got to do it. I've mm -hmm. got to see John. And she's going, what are you mad? I'm going, 
don't know what it is. I need to see John. If you have those instincts, you have to trust them, don't you? Because I don't, I, I've never had it before. Telling you. I've never had it before. I've never had it since. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I had it that time. And, uh, but anyway, they, they were all devastated. Anyway, to take it back up to the absolute moment, recently, Cameron Skewer, obviously, we lost uh, Kerry, who's... Yeah. Yeah, was, was, I was a keyboard player. It was devastating. We're a great friend. Mm -hmm. Lovely person. Um, but they they came on and uh, played some recent gigs, I say recent, about a year ago in Glasgow. Um, yeah, maybe thinking about reforming after being out for quite some time after Katie died. And they were put two nights in a row at the St. Jude's. We played by Barlands, tiny little church. And the second night she played a song, and it was one of those nights where at the end of the song, Everyone just stopped and just couldn't speak. You had 400 people silent. There were quite a lot of tears, mm. and we were all thinking the same sort of things. And she hadn't said it was for care or anything like that. But the, the, her voice, the, what she was, how she was singing at that particular moment, it was just uh, awe-inspiring. So it doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's beautiful and it's. Uh, so I told you I'd get back round to that. <laughs> yeah, you did, and, uh, and, and uh, well worth, well worth the wait. <laughs> so I, so I, I dearly loved them and what they gave me, and uh, from there there was a lot of new bands that I found that I kind of moved towards that I hadn't known about beforehand because that whole scene that was happening again in Glasgow for the second time in my life there'd been a big gap between the two, but the second one was fantastic too. There are people in the, over the years that have. You know, held on to their art, and uh, so you can actually do it. Bowie, Bowie did it to a large degree, and others yeah. have done it. That you can actually have another way. So I'm not over earnest, and I'm not a complete bore about it. But there is something beautiful about, particularly some new bands that are doing it with the purity of youth, and it's, uh, it's, it's nothing much to touch it a lot of the time. Mm. Well, that is lovely to hear that in general, I think. And uh, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you today. I must say, Pat, it's uh, lived up to my expectations and much, much more. I really enjoyed that. And uh, uh, by the way, we, we, we've done this just now. And before you go, um, we, <laughs> I've, I've got publishers who tell me who I, I'm, I've never been told to do. I've never had an agent in my life, right? Uh -huh. Ever. Right. right. But I've got this book and I've got publishers and they're saying, do talk to this lot, don't talk to that lot. And I'm going... I don't do that. Um, Thank God for that, hey, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying really hard to give you, I'm not trying to sell the book to you because it's not out until May, right? So I'm trying to tell you lots of stories that aren't in the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was really hard. But um, it's kind of, it's just basically nice to talk to people who have got a passion for the music. And that's why they, they might be able to say to me, don't talk to the Sunday Times and I'll take their word for it. But, I'm afraid there are certain people that I'd rather talk to. Oh, Pat, that means so much. Thank you so much. And, you know, we we are, um, we have quite a, a small a small list of people we pursue to talk to on this podcast. And it's usually that crossover, you know, people who maybe have a, a, a different thing that seems like the primary thing going on in their lives. But actually, underneath it all, a lot of what, a lot of what they're all about is kind of driven by music and obviously you know you are that type of person so really you've been a, a dream guest yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure and, and as usual with these things i'll go away and think to myself 
I don't give myself too much there. No, it's oh perfect, absolutely perfect. And like I say, the, what goes around podcast is all about the way we bill it. Is we say, you know, it's a it's a a music podcast about music fans more than music makers. And I think you personify that perfectly for us because, you know, when I was when I was thinking who can we get, I, I thought, well, there's a guy, you know, who who it shines out of you. I can tell, you know, if you, I just knew if we asked you, you'd want to talk about music because I, I've always seen that come out of you in the way you've, when and the few times you are allowed to do it on, on, on media, you know, I can see there's a genuine love there. And that really is what this podcast is about. It's not about, you know, oh, you know, we went to the Bahamas to record our album and blah, blah, blah. It's about, it's about the people who buy the album and love the album. Do you know what I mean? And I, I can't think of a better guest than yourself. So thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I'm going to go and have a cup of tea and a lie down now because that two hours sleep last night. Stick a bit, <laughs> stick a bit of cocktail twins on, you'll be right. Um, <laughs> I'm actually considering low. If you enjoyed this podcast and if you made it this far, I have no doubt that you did. Please help us out by liking, subscribing to the podcast, leaving us a review if you feel so inclined. Um, tell your friends as well. In fact, that's probably the biggest favor you could do for us. If you enjoyed this podcast, recommend it to a friend, allow them to enjoy it too and uh, spread the word. We want to proliferate and spread our seed uh, throughout 2021 and beyond. Uh, we'd be so grateful uh, for that to you. And if you want to get in touch with us, whatgoespod at gmail.com is the email 
email address, you'll find us at What Goes Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Just to be contrary, though, on Facebook, we are What Goes Around Podcast. So feel free to follow us there. Do make sure you join us for the next episode of What Goes Around. Sharing her phonographic memories with us is going to be one of the coolest women on the planet, Zoe Ajanio, a celebrity chef, I would categorize her as. You may know her best uh, for Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, uh, where she interprets Ghanaian food and feeds it to the masses. She's been a judge on MasterChef. She's been uh, all over your radio and all over your TV and uh, possibly in your cookbook collection at home as well. She had a very interesting upbringing, half Irish, half Ghanaian, brought up in London. And we are so looking forward to hearing her phonographic memories. Make sure you join us next time.